You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On January 20th, 1983, a young six-year-old girl failed to meet up with her five-year-old brother as Grosvenor Elementary School in Edmonton, Alberta let out for lunch around 11 a.m. She was meant to meet up with her brother for the two-block walk home, but unfortunately, she never met up with her brother, and she has not been seen or heard from since. Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Gone But Never Forgotten. The Sad Tale of the Merle Family. Welcome back. First and foremost, thank you for listening. If you're a regular listener, thank you for spending time with us every couple of weeks. And if you're new to our podcast, we hope that you like what you hear and we keep you coming back for more. I'm blessed to once again have the best co-host in the business at my side, my lovely wife, Julie. Hello again, Julie. Thank you for always being here by my side as we look at the darker side of things. How are you? Hi, Lance. I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here once again. Um, It's always interesting to look into these things. Uh, Like you said, even though it's a little bit darker than I would like, especially today. um, But it's good to put the information out there and uh, educate myself and others. Yep, for sure. I mean, this is definitely my passion project and I'm glad you're coming along for the ride. Yeah, this has definitely been interesting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, without any further ado from us... Let's dive right in here to the story of the Merle family. January 20th, 1983 was the kind of day that nightmares are made of for a family who lived in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada at the time. It started out as a day like any other with two children leaving home for school. At 7.30 a.m., the family's aunt, Verta Stortz, was dropped off at the family home as she would be babysitting Tanya and John for the day. The normal lunchtime routine for Tanya, who was six years old and in grade one at the time, and attending Grosvenor Elementary School, was to meet up with her young brother John, who was five and in kindergarten, and walk the one and a half blocks to their house, which was located at 10345 144th Street. On January 20th, though, Tanya would last be seen by friends that she said goodbye to and a teacher. But when John came outside to meet with his sister around 11.10 a.m., she was nowhere to be seen. John decided that she must have left school without him, and he then decided to walk home by himself. 
When John arrived home around 11.20, his sister was not there. Their Aunt Vera asked John where his sister was, and he told her that some friends had told him that Tanya had gone to a friend's house for lunch. Vera did a quick check, though, and found that Tanya was not, in fact, at said friend's house. Vera then quickly contacted Jack and Vivian Merle, the parents, and started to search up and down the streets close by for Tanya. Vivian went to the school, hoping that she would find her daughter in her class after lunch. But sadly, when she arrived, the desk was empty and Tanya was nowhere to be found. Immediately, Vivian then made the call to the Edmonton police to report her daughter as missing. An officer made a trip out to the house to find out what clothing she had last been seen wearing and began to canvas door to door to attempt to find Tanya or anyone who had seen Tanya. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? That's like a parent's worst nightmare. Yeah, that's definitely, I don't even know what you do in that situation. Yeah, it's just like that first moment of panic where you're like, okay, we need to call the police. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The ensuing day and night would then consist of attempts to locate Tanya and hopes and prayers that Tanya had decided to go to a friend's for a sleepover and neglected to tell them. These are the things that no doubt goes through a family's mind in a situation like this. Anything rational or irrational to explain where their daughter may be and why she would turn up the next day. Unfortunately, though, against all hope, Tanya did not show up for school the next day. And now, over 38 years later, Tanya has not been seen or heard from since that day. The first thing that people usually will do in a situation like this is look into and ask about family. Vivian worked at a bakery that was close by the family home, and Jack worked building new houses in Edmonton. Both were known as a couple who loved their alcohol and marijuana and were friends with everyone that they knew or came into contact with. If you asked anyone, though, they were just two young parents who had their hearts, souls, and lives torn apart when their daughter was ripped out of their lives. Heather Hansen, who was Vivian's closest friend, said that Tanya was an absolutely joyful child and that anyone would have been over the moon to have a daughter like her. She said that Tanya was always quiet, content, and incredibly loving, always wanting hugs and kisses from people when they arrived or left the home. She sounds like such a sweet kid. She does, I know. It's so sad. One thing that is important to note here as well is that as soon as Vivian got the call from Vera, she knew that something was wrong. Tanya was not the type of child to veer from the norm or to not wait for her brother for the daily walk home. She was typically diligent about not wandering and following her parents' instructions. When Tanya didn't show up for school the next day, everything started up in a frenzy. The media started to report locally, nationally, and internationally, with the disappearance of Tanya being the lead story all over Canada and the U.S. I will say that when I was first reading this, I thought it was kind of weird. Like, you just let your six-year-old walk home alone. Like, I thought that was weird. But then this paragraph here really shows, like, you know, you can really see that they trusted their children. The children listened to her, to the parents. You know what I mean? So it's easy for people to judge, but each child is so different towards their parents and the rules, you know? For sure. Like, I guess for me, I mean, there's only six years difference from us. 
between us, but like I honestly believe sometimes that it's like an incredible distance of time because yeah. when I was five and six, I mean, I walked to school and I walked by myself or with a friend and it was longer than this. It was probably like five or six blocks and I walked it by myself. I wow. cut through the behind a Burger King plaza wow. and like, yeah, it's, it's, it was a different time. It was because in my, in my generation's era, I'll say like that would never happen. Never. You also grew up in the big city, and I grew up in a considerably smaller city. So That's true. It's a little bit different. That's true. Sadly, as is apt to happen in situations like this, it didn't take long for rumors and talk to start, as everyone always wants to have their say, and there's always seems to be some kind of race to uncover the truth, or at least facts, that may lead to an arrest. Armchair sleuths is what each and every one of us are at the end of the day. It started where it often does. People often look to a parent in the disappearance of a child, and many people came quickly to learn that Jack, her dad, was a biker, though not a member of a gang. From there, people began to hypothesize that maybe Jack's, Jack owed money to someone for marijuana or something along those lines, and that's what led to the disappearance of their daughter to pay off a debt. Jack even made changes to his appearance at the time. He shaved off his beard um, and did different things to avoid unneeded scrutiny and added stress and pain just for himself and his wife. To say that life had changed was an understatement, not just for the Merles, but for Edmonton as a whole and likely everywhere else as well. Parents everywhere were taking the time to thank God that this was not their child whilst also wondering what changes need to be made in their own lives to ensure that this would not happen to them or their child. Not to mention, people were now keenly aware that someone, somewhere, had grabbed a six-year-old girl within a one and a half block radius between her school and home. We should pause here for a moment to give details of Tanya at the time of her disappearance. So many years have passed, but one cannot lose hope in the fact that someone somewhere might in fact still have details about this case that we have yet to have uncovered. Tanya was born on June 20th, 1976, and at the time of her disappearance, she was three foot six, approximately 45 pounds, and had blonde hair and brown eyes. She was last seen leaving the school wearing a blue coat with a white fur collar, green corduroy pants, a black Harley Davidson t-shirt, and brown boots. She had pierced ears and a birthmark on her right temple. For their part, police and detectives were all over this case and their tip lines were ringing off the hook. At the time, the search for Tanya was far and away the largest ground search in Edmonton's history. Hundreds of city blocks were scoured and leads were all being chased down in hopes of finding young Tanya alive and well. Hundreds of people aided in the search, including police officers, friends, relatives, and volunteers from the community. Everything was checked, including ravines, alleys, and anywhere else that seemed likely or unlikely. These searches were done on foot and in vehicles. In January of 1983, Jack and Vivian recorded an audio file pleading for the return of their daughter. 
I tried to get the audio file to work so I could put it into the podcast, but it was a little too quiet no matter how I manipulated it and old. So Julie and I are going to read the transcript. Vivian speaking. Hi, Tanya. We miss you, babe. Mom is waiting for you to come home right now. I know you want to come home. And who's got you? You gotta tell them that you want to come home. Just tell him he knows you are a good girl and you gotta come home. We gotta do ballet. And John wants you home. Mom doesn't know what to do anymore. She misses you so much. But whoever has you, just drop her off at someplace warm. We don't want to see who you are. Just bring my baby home. She does want to come home. She loves her mom. She loves her dad, her kittens, her puppers, and she's got to come home. She wants to come home. You know she wants to come home. Please make Tanya come home. Jack speaking. Whoever you are, if you got my Tanya and you're keeping her warm and safe, that means you must care about her. If you care about her, let her come home. Please, please just let our little girl come home. Just take her someplace where somebody can find her. Vivian speaking. Okay, this is to whoever. If you need money, we don't have any money, but we can get money for you. If you need that, just phone us and we'll help you out. Borrow money. It doesn't even matter. We got to bring Tanya home. We'll get you some money if you want money. We got a lot of friends that love Tanya. We really miss her. We've been trying so hard to find her and we just want, don't want her out in the cold. We just can't have that little girl out in the cold anywhere. We have to have Tanya back because we just have to. And we need her more than you need her. And I know she wants to come home. Oh, heartbreaking stuff there. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be in their shoes. To have to go through this. Just reading those words is unreal in a way. How do people do things like this? How does someone just grab a child and change so many lives in an instant? Yeah, that was definitely um, hard to read and hard to listen to, definitely. Um, it's it's so sad. And the, the sad thing is this happens all the time. Like, this is not something just from the 80s. You know, this is happening every day. Yeah. And to make matters worse, not long after Tanya vanished, so did Harley, her black dog. Foul play was seemingly not suspected by those involved, but this was just another horrible occurrence for a family who was really already going through hell. And to make matters even worse, the family started to receive calls after their appeal for the return of Tanya. Some of those calls came from a man in Edmonton who was demanding $40,000 in return for the safe return of their daughter. The man making the calls, Richard Mackenzie Matthews, was charged with extortion in the case on February 15, 1983. Police, however, deemed after investigation that Richard, in fact, was not involved in the disappearance of Tanya and was simply ex attempting to extort the family and take advantage of their situation. Richard, however, was found guilty and sentenced to three years in prison. In 1985, a medical illustrator from Illinois drew a picture of what Tanya would be expected to look like, updated to current day. The medical illustrator had done update photos in the past that had actually aided in finding at least six other children. 
So Vivian was uplifted by this and believed that it could help keep the trail from running cold and also help to finally bring her daughter home. Jack and Vivian also created Canada's first group to aid in finding missing children, the Tanya Murrell Missing Children Society. They were doing everything that they possibly could to find their daughter and also to help others that found themselves in the same situation that they were in. Over the years, there have been numerous theories around the case. We will look at three of them in a moment, but we will take a moment to lay out general guidelines that are followed in cases like this when trying to determine what may have or could happen to a missing child. Police generally operate under two stereotypes that have proven correct more often than not in cases like this. If the kidnapper of a child, specifically a young girl, is a male, the general consensus is that the abduction takes place for more sinister reasons and they believe that those motives are generally sexual in nature and or that the motive is generally and sadly murder. If the abductor is a female, the general consensus is that more often than not, the motive is for the female to have a child, whether that is because she is physically unable to have children or because she is a loner without any substantial partner to procreate with. The end result, more often than not, in these cases does not end in murder, but rather a situation where the child may in fact be raised, brainwashed, and led to believe that her new family is in fact her family. In this specific case, the primary belief was that a man that was known to the family abducted Tanya. The man in question was an alcoholic and he did not have an alibi for the time and date in question. At the time of the disappearance, the man was 31 years old. According to people that were close to the situation and knew everyone involved, the man had taken the children camping alone in the past, and around the time of Tanya's disappearance, he had written a very strange poem that centered around being in love in a situation where that love could not be returned. The man also had a reported history of being violent. Investigators would interrogate the man at great length, for 11 hours at one point to be exact, but they were unable to get a confession or uncover enough evidence to get the Crown to pursue filing charges. While the man did not confess or deny having anything to do with the disappearance, he has been reported as telling the police, Fuck you. You ain't got a body and a polygraph test that he took proved to be inconclusive. The police strongly believed that they had their guy, and even offered him a plea deal of second-degree murder, but he refused. The police believed that they had enough evidence to charge him, but they did not believe that there was enough evidence, unfortunately, to get a conviction. As such, the man was never formally charged in this case. The man was also a person of interest in an earlier case of abduction and murder, the 1979 disappearance and subsequent murder of Kevin Reimer at Elk Island National Park, where the man was working at the time. The man that was the person of interest also left Edmonton for Ontario in the spring of 1983, rather quickly after the disappearance of Tanya. Now, this is unsubstantiated as far as we can tell, so we will not produce this as a fact. But Byron Christopher, who has done extensive research into this case and also written the book, What Happened to Tanya, 
has stated that the man in question in this case was Lauren Douglas Thomas, a man who fit the descriptions and timeline. If indeed Lauren was the man in question, who would also be called Uncle L in a later interview by Tanya's brother John, then there will in fact not be any justice for the Merle family, as Lauren passed away in the Sarnia area of Ontario in 2016. For a long time, Vivian and Jack would both state unequivocally that they did not believe that Uncle L could have been responsible for taking or doing any harm to Tanya. These beliefs were in stark contrast from the beliefs of their friends at the time who had reportedly warned the family not to leave the man alone with their children. Reports also state that as the years went by, without telling anyone why her opinion had changed, Vivian had changed her tune and believed that Uncle L had indeed murdered her daughter. The second theory in this case lines up with what we shared about women kidnapping young children. Investigators, and reportedly Tanya's sister Alicia, believe that perhaps Tanya was abducted by a woman who could not bear her own child, and that perhaps Tanya had been brainwashed and led to believe that she was not, nor never was, Tanya Merle. The basis for this theory is that there was an eyewitness report of a woman dragging a seemingly unwilling girl down the sidewalk on 144th Street around the time of Tanya's disappearance. Unable to bear the burden of living where Tanya had gone missing, Jack, Vivian, and Alicia would move to Kelowna, BC. Eventually, and sadly, as tends to happen, Jack and Vivian would get a divorce in the 1990s likely due in large part to the mental and emotional tolls of Tanya's disappearance. Jack would pass away in 2005, Vivian would pass away in 2011, and in 2015, Tanya's brother John would pass away only weeks after returning to Edmonton to attempt to rebuild his life and weeks after he was interviewed in the Edmonton Sun. John had spent much of his adult life in jail in BC, but was desperately trying to rebuild a life for himself, and that was sadly cut short. As far as we can tell, no cause of death was ever released to the public. All we know is that autopsy results were inconclusive. Reports that he took his own life appear to have been false. So what we have here is a story of long-reaching heartbreak, heartache, sadness, and a severe lack of answers. As I always do, I want to appeal to anyone out there that's listening to this podcast and knows anything about what could have or did happen to Tanya Morrill, please come forward. Tell your story and help close the books on this case. There is no amount of time that passes that makes people that were involved with this case forget about it or leave it behind. Tanya still has a living sister and family and there are so many people who have been involved in attempting to solve this case. So know that if you do know something, you can ease a lot of minds and help a lot of people out by speaking up. Those with any information about the case are asked to contact the Edmonton Police Services at 780-421-3382 or the RCMP at one 877 318-3576. Wow, that's uh, a, such a sad, sad story. I know all our stories are sad, but this one is extremely sad uh, from my point of view because, like, 
the parents are gone, the brother's gone. So it's like, really, the pressure needs to be put on to find out what happened to Tanya before her immediate family, anyways, is gone. You know, at least give her sister some closure. And of course, she probably has uncles and aunts they want to know the answers for. But it's just, it's so sad that almost all of her immediate family is gone and there's still no answers. Yeah, this story was hard to research. Um, I actually, I had two people within the same week tell me to take a listen or take a look into this story and see if there was um, an episode on it. And... Like, at first blush, I would thought, like, oh my goodness. Because, you know, before I did any research really in, in depth, I came across the story of her brother, John, and there's nothing. There's no details. And all I, you know, I just, I put it in there in the script, and it's like, you know, he did an interview with the Edmonton Sun after returning back, getting out of jail, and to, within, I think it was two weeks, they found him dead. And it's like... You well, almost wonder what is happened. Is that connected or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, he was basically dragging a story out of the mud from years late earlier. Yeah. You know, maybe if someone that was involved, even if the Uncle L guy was involved, it's almost like someone knew and didn't want the story getting dragged up again. You know, like, this is just me hypothesizing. It's just... Once I dove into the story more, I realized that's probably not the case because I would hope that there'd be more information out there about yeah. that if that was the case. But just this whole story, man, this whole Merle family, like, it's just heartbreaking. Like, I can't imagine all of these things that happened. It's I just, know. Well, know. and at this point, it's almost like, you know, very unlikely things are... Or situations are, are kind of things that you're looking into now because the likely situations didn't work out. Like, we haven't found answers from that. So, you know, even, like, these theories that you have, as much as, you know, you, you want them not to be real or you think it's so far, far-fetched, it might not be. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean... From the research that I did, obviously it looks like Uncle L, I don't even want to say his name, so I'm going to say Uncle L, um, probably was behind the murder. You, when you put the pieces together um, and you see, you know, the police had the suspect and it looks like it was the same guy, you know, and all of that, like, that probably is the truth. It's just, that's the other thing that sucks is it's, you know, you can be sure that you have the guy and, you know, with him saying, like, you don't have a body like that's pretty damning yeah. yeah so it's like but at the end of the day like someone saying that isn't going to hold up in court no like you need proof you know for people to do that stuff so um you know it's like we said even though it's been you know plus 30 years or whatever like tanya could still be out there and be alive so you know let's bring her home to her sister and the rest of her family and let's really find out what happened you know hopefully she hasn't been completely brainwashed but at the same time hopefully she's been with a loving family and that would be the best case scenario yeah absolutely i think that pretty much sums everything up from where we sit yeah oh yeah so i'll just say please remember if you enjoy the podcast and you want to help us out, we do have a Patreon account set up. You can also reach out to us via email, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We love to interact with our fans. For now, we're going to bid you adieu and thank you for listening to Gone But, but Never, Never Forgotten. Forgotten.